Well, if you ever saw me dance, you would not think I crashed weddings. And if you take a look at my lovely wife sitting back there, you know I'm not, go, I don't go, crash weddings to meet girls. Well, Rod and Elia do not remember me from their wedding. Evidently, they were preoccupied that day. Uh. Well, greetings, brothers and sisters. As Matthew said, um, I've been the pastor at Grace Baptist Church, evidently a church very much like this one, uh, for 28 years. We thank, I thank God for sustaining me and my wife there all those years. Um, Matthew also, Matthew, Matt also said that, um, that Rod and I are not related. Uh, that may not be entirely true. Certainly we are not related in, in, in any recent generation. However, it seems that perhaps our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents probably dug coal together somewhere in the mines of Wales and died of lung cancer at 35. Uh, his family saw the wisdom of coming to America about 30 years ago, and mine beat them by about 300 years. So if you think that says something good about this branch of the Phillips family, well, okay. My topic today is entitled, What's Wrong with the Pharisees? What is wrong with the Pharisees? No one can read the New Testament and come away with a positive view of the Pharisees. And this is not just your opinion and mine, but it was also the decided opinion of our Lord Jesus Christ. No one was more charitable than the Lord Jesus. No one was less likely to exaggerate the faults of other people than he. And yet if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that our Lord constantly exposed their wickedness, condemned them for their evil ways, and frequently lampooned them. Here they were buffoons posing as serious men and they deserve the laughter of God and man alike. Uh, several illustrations occur to me, and so we'll just reduce them to three. First, we have the story of the Pharisee with his proud and scornful ways. Our Lord tells the parable of the Pharisee who went up to pray in the temple. And in the Lord's telling, we find that this Pharisee just had no respect for God just no reverence at all. He marched up as far as he could go in the temple and he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men. I'm thankful that I'm not an extortioner, that I'm not unjust, that I'm not an adulterer, and most of all, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this publican over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Listen to the scorn this man had. God revealed himself in the Old Testament as a friend of sinners, as one who remembered our frames and knew that we were but dust. And here we have a sinner, a notorious sinner, who's come to temple maybe for the first time in many years, a broken man, a man who wants to find mercy with God, and all the Pharisee has for this poor publican is scorn. But of course he feels that way. 
because he doesn't feel that he himself is a sinner. And so the Pharisees were proud and scornful men. You know, it's very hard to be proud when you hold up your own life against the moral law of God. And so the Pharisee didn't do that. Pharisees became obsessed with the little things of the law, the less weighty matters of God's word. Things like tithing, tithing mint and anise and cumin. These were, the, these were the herbs that were grown in someone's little garden. And so he'd pick maybe a few ounces a year and offer these to the Lord and feel so proud of himself all the while ignoring the matters that think the, the things that mattered most, all the while ignoring justice and mercy and faith. Our Lord Jesus compared these men to the kind of man who would, well, just think about it. He's got a cup of wine, and he's a very fastidious man. He certainly doesn't want to ingest anything that might be unclean. The least unclean thing had to be screened away from him. And so our Lord said he strains out a gnat. Says, whew, glad I got that gnat out. But he doesn't realize there's a camel in the cup. Straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. The Pharisees were people obsessed with the little things of the law and altogether indifferent to the things that mattered most. In a word, the Pharisees were hypocrites appalling hypocrites, praying long prayers in public places, but on the sly, cheating old ladies out of their living. Israel had its share of sinners, from gangsters and prostitutes to people living otherwise decent lives without God and not caring. But Jesus denounced no one more often and more harshly than the Pharisees. He said, you're a brood of serpents, vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? And of course, being the kind of men they were, they could not escape the judgment of God. And they did not. The judgment first fell on them 40 years after the Lord spoke these words, when the Romans fulfilled the words by the worst bloodbath in the history of the world. It was the Pharisees who took control of Judea around 70 AD and were slaughtered by the Romans with their wicked little republic lost forever. To this day, the heirs of the Pharisees mourn the fall of Jerusalem, but the fact is, heaven celebrates it. Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants that were shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rises up forever and ever. This was a judgment on the Pharisees and their way of living and not the final judgment, of course. The final judgment is yet to come and the Pharisees will be consigned to place made first for the devil and his angels. So again, nobody can read the New Testament and come away with a positive view of the Pharisees. But if Phariseeism itself was a very bad thing, not every Pharisee quite fit the mold. 
not every Pharisee was a bad man. Some Pharisees were not hypocrites. Some Pharisees did not care more for the praise of man than the praise of God. And some Pharisees knew very well that a clean heart mattered more to God than clean pots and pans. Who were the good Pharisees? Well, minority, to be sure. But who were they? Well, the one we know best from the Bible is Saul of Tarsus. Saul, later Paul, called himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he swore under oath that he had always kept his conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. Did he succeed? Well, if by that you mean was Saul a perfect or sinless man, of course he wasn't. Nobody's without sin. Saul himself knew that and said so every time he offered a sacrifice to God or fasted on the annual day of atonement. Saul did not claim to be a sinless man, but he claimed to be a sincere man, a conscientious man, a man who really did his level best to keep the law of God and please the Lord from the heart. Without being perfect, he was honest, living up to the knowledge he had, throwing body and soul into the service of God as he understood it, as touching the law, he said, I was blameless. Saul was an exceptional Pharisee, and we know far more about his life than we do any other man who belonged to that party. But Saul was not one of a kind. It wasn't as though he was the only sincere Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea was another one. The Bible tells us that he was on the ruling council of Israel and that, and that he was a wealthy man, but he didn't worry about um, how his decisions would affect his wealth. He didn't hew that line. Rather, he was an honest man who buried the Lord Jesus. Remember, who buried a notorious criminal, a man hated and condemned by the council, in his own tomb. And so Joseph was another good Pharisee. And so was his colleague and ally on the ruling council, Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus is the man who appears prominently in the scripture reading we just had. John chapter 3, 1 to 21. He's the man who came to the Lord Jesus on that fateful night. And people have speculated why he came at night rather than during the day. Did he come at night because he was sneaking around, sneaking around the Sanhedrin? Maybe. Did he come at night simply because Jesus was a popular man and he was easier to reach at night? Did he come at night just because he preferred the later hours? Well, the Bible doesn't say, but it does say that one night Nicodemus came to see the Lord. What kind of man came to the Lord that night? Well, Nicodemus was a man of great learning. Jesus calls him the teacher in Israel. He said, what, are you the teacher in Israel? The teacher, our Lord says, not a teacher. This could mean that he was the most respected rabbi in the country. And if he wasn't the most respected, he was certainly one of the top men. Because Nicodemus knew his Bible, he knew God, is not satisfied with outward obedience, that God wants the heart. This was the man's doctrine, that it's not good enough to pray public prayers. It's not good enough to 
to wash pots and pans. You've got to be clean on the inside if you're going to be acceptable to God. This was Nicodemus' doctrine, and from what we know about him in the New Testament, it was his practice. When it could have been easier and safer to join the council in accusing Jesus, he defended him because it was the right thing to do. And as best we can tell, he defended the Lord before he even became a disciple. Remember, the, the, the leaders of Israel had got together to condemn the Lord. But of course they were condemning him on no evidence at all. Just a few rumors here and there, hearsay now and again. And Nicodemus stood up in the council, an angry council, a threatening council, and said, does our law judge a man before it hears it? Before it hears him and knows what he's doing? This is a just man, a courageous man, a man who wants to do the right thing, who wants to live up to the demands of the law. Now what gave him the courage to stand up to the bigoted and bloodthirsty council? Well, the answer to that is his belief in the resurrection. Nicodemus was a sincere Pharisee, and this means he believed in the resurrection, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And what this means simply is this. Nicodemus knew that he was accountable to God. He's accountable to God here, and he's accountable to God hereafter. He understood that what you do here in this world, in this life, has eternal significance for good or evil. Like other Pharisees, he believed God would raise the dead and give every man what he had coming. The Lord's enemies he knew would be punished, but his friends would awake to everlasting life and shine like the brightness of the firmament and like the stars forever and ever. Daniel chapter 12. This was a key doctrine to the Pharisee, and while they all professed it, only a few lived as though it were true. Nicodemus was one of the few. He was a man who knew he was accountable to God, and that if he was going to enjoy God's favor forever, he'd better live a good life now. Nicodemus then was a, was a, a learned man. He was also an honest man who knew the Bible, believed its promises, and tried to obey it from the heart. But for all this, Nicodemus was no better than the other Pharisees. If the other Pharisees, the bloodthirsty, hypocritical Pharisees, were outside the kingdom of heaven, so was Nicodemus. What was wrong with him? Well, we don't have to guess. It comes out in his first conversation with Jesus a talk we have the privilege of listening in on. Nicodemus begins by telling Jesus what he knows. And this is a trap that scholars and rabbis and, and pastors sometimes fall into. We want to make sure that you know what we know. So Nicodemus starts off by saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God, for no man can do the miracles that you're doing unless God is with him. Everything he says is true and is well stated. He calls Jesus rabbi, and this is well worth noting because rabbi was a title of honor in Israel. Nobody was more respected than rabbis. 
Mothers didn't want their sons to grow up to be millionaires. They wanted them to grow up to be learned, to spend their lives studying the word of God. And so rabbi was a a title of honor in Israel, and that means real rabbis like Nicodemus were not too fond of applying it to men without professional training like Jesus. But Nicodemus calls Jesus that, and there's no uh, hint of sarcasm or flattery. A professor of theology really respects a carpenter from Nazareth. Nicodemus knows that Jesus is a rabbi and that God is with him. He has seen or heard of the miracles and he knows they're genuine. Jesus is not a charlatan and he's not working under the power of an evil spirit. Jesus is a man of God and he's a prophet doing mighty works as Moses had done, as Elijah had done, and other famous men in the Old Testament. Nicodemus puts Jesus in their class. Nicodemus doesn't claim to know everything, of course, but what he knows, he knows, and we're prone to admire him for it. We're prone to say things like what I just said, that Nicodemus was a very good Pharisee. Jesus thinks differently. He says, in fact, Nicodemus doesn't know anything about the kingdom of God. He can't even see the kingdom of God no less understand it. Why not? Again, it's not because he's a stupid man or without learning. It's also not because the kingdom is hidden so well one needs an occult key to open it. The kingdom of God is not hidden. In the first century, in this century, in every century, fishermen and housewives and other run-of-the-mill people have seen the kingdom and have gotten into it. Nicodemus has done neither. He's outside the kingdom and he can't even see it. To him, the kingdom of heaven is a black hole. It's simply invisible. You know why, don't you? It's because he's not born again. That's what the Lord says in verses 3 and 7. Nicodemus says, we know all these things. And the Lord says, you don't know any of these things. Because unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Unless a man is born of water and spirit, he knows nothing at all about the kingdom. Now what in the world can this mean? Nicodemus was clueless, wondering if a full-grown man had to get back into his mother's womb and be born a second time. Of course, that's not what Jesus meant. Being born again, Jesus says, means being born of water and of the Spirit. Now this is not all that helpful, is it? It's like defining a $10 word with a $20 word. But if Nicodemus didn't catch on immediately, in time he did. To be born again means to receive a new life, a new life from God. Why do we need a new life from God? Paul says it's because we are dead in trespasses and sins. This means we are born separated from God and we cannot get back to Him or find His life. Surely, if you've read the first two chapters of the Bible, you know this. Adam and Eve were made in the likeness and image of God. God breathed the breath of life into them. Adam and Eve were alive to God. 
But when they sided with the serpent and sinned against the Lord, they died spiritually and they couldn't reach the tree of life because cherubim were posted all around it to keep them away. This was man's first lesson in what was later called complete inability. We can't get right with God on our own. We can't fix our lives because we have no life to fix. Without Christ, we're spiritually dead. Everybody in this room, including the pastor, everyone in this room needs the new birth. Being good is not good enough. Knowing the Bible is not enough. Loving your neighbor is not enough. To be right with God, you've got to receive a life directly from God. You've got to receive a new birth, a birth of water, a birth of spirit. But now, when, G when Nicodemus doesn't get the new birth right away, Jesus tries again. To see or enter the kingdom of heaven, he has to be born of water and of spirit. Now, what does this mean? Well, Christians have debated these terms for a very long time, and they've not always spoken with a single voice. There are many answers to the question, what does it mean to be born of spirit and water? Some of the answers are unlikely, some are laughable, some are heretical, some are plausible. But assuming that Jesus was trying to communicate something to Nicodemus, he must have used the thought categories of the time. He must have used the images current in that place. And so this, I think, really explains what it means to be born of water and the Spirit. It's got to make sense to Nicodemus. And so it did make sense to him. To the Jews of the first century, water harked back to the Exodus. When God freed his people from Egypt with his almighty power. As for the spirit that looks forward to the new covenant. When God will complete the exodus by freeing his people from all of their enemies. Including sin, Satan and death. The exodus and the new covenant are not the same thing. But they have one thing in common. It is God who performs them. Moses did not part the Red Sea. The winds did not, did not part the Red Sea. It was the Lord who parted the Red Sea. And although the new covenant is promised and described by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the others didn't ratify it. God ratified the new covenant with the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. This tells us what's wrong with the Pharisee. With the terrible Pharisees, the horrible hypocrite Pharisees, but also the best Pharisee. The Pharisee believes that godliness comes from what we do, or perhaps from what we do in response to God. It doesn't. Godliness comes from God Himself. He is the one and only source of holiness. It's the law, isn't it, that says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. God doesn't contribute to our sanctification. 
He sanctifies us. Yes, of course, He uses means, but we can use the means till we drop dead, and the means themselves will never sanctify us. It is only the Lord Himself who does this. Reading the Bible, praying, coming to church, celebrating the Lord's Supper, trying hard, confessing your sins, seeking the help of your pastor are all good things. And every one of us ought to do them. But they don't make us right with God. More to the point, they don't keep us right with God. God Himself makes us right with God. God Himself keeps us right with God. The whole Christian life, and not just the first moment of it, is of Him and through Him and to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the problem with Jewish Phariseeism. It's the belief that in response to God, we make ourselves godly. But if the Jews had their Pharisees, let's not think the church doesn't have our fair share. We have our Pharisees also. And I don't mean her and him and that couple over there, but I mean there's Phariseeism in every one of us. We read the Bible and see what God wants us to do. We try to do what God wants us to do, and one of two things occurs. Either we fail, and that's bad and discouraging, or we succeed, and that's bad because it makes us proud of ourselves and scornful of the people who don't live up to our standards. But Jesus says to us, we too must be born again of water and spirit. Systematic theology tells us this is a one-time event, and of course that's true. But in a different way, in a deeper way, we have to be born again every day. God himself has to work in us daily, for it is only as he does it that we see the kingdom and we live in it. We are totally dependent on God. And this is not a bad thing because God is totally dependable. Our dependence on Him is a fact. A fact more or less all believers subscribe to in theory. But subscribing to something in theory is a lot different than living by it. Why is it that we feel dependent on God when we get bad news from the doctor? Why do we feel dependent on God when we lose our jobs? When our families break up? When our sons don't come home at night? Why do we feel dependent on God then, but not dependent on God when we have a job? When we get a clean bill of health from the doctor? And when our sons and daughters are just the best kids they could be? The fact is, we're always dependent on God's mercy, and that's good. That's not a bad place to be because God's mercy endures forever. But we don't feel our dependence on God, and we know we don't because when it comes to obedience and holiness, our default position is try harder. Whatever we say to the contrary, however much we give glory to God and submit to grace alone and all of that, whatever we say, more often than not, the real uh, 
our, our true default position is to try harder. I'm going to get a good devotional life. I've not been praying much lately. And you know I skipped Bible reading three days last week. Today is Sunday. It's the first day of the week and I'm going to try harder. And this time next week, I'm going to have a wonderful devotional life. You know, I've got some really bad habits. Embarrassing habits. They hurt my health. They get me in trouble with my family. They endanger my reputation. And you know, I'm going to break that bad habit because, well, I've tried many times in the past, but this time, I'm going to try harder. Friends come to you for advice, marital advice, advice rearing their children, other kinds of hard situations in their lives. And what advice do you leave them with? As often as not, we leave them with the advice, try harder. We have family devotions. My wife and my kids and I sit together to read the Bible and pray, and we want to learn God's way, but somehow or other, it gets translated or mistranslated to the kids that what God really requires of us is to try harder. And worst of all, when other people don't live up to our standards. I broke that bad habit, why didn't you? I never miss a day of Bible reading, why do you? I'm not that way. I've disciplined myself. When other people fail to live up to our standards, we wonder why they don't try harder. Try harder. This is the theology of Pharaoh. The full tale of bricks can't be made unless we supply the straw. Unless we supply the straw. Pharaoh's answer is try harder. Find the straw yourself. Get up earlier. Work later. Put in a longer day's work. That was how Pharaoh thought. And you know, that's what the Exodus was for. To free God's people from Pharaoh's tyranny. And not only Pharaoh's tyranny, but the tyranny of trying harder. The Exodus was to free us from the slavery of trying harder and allow us to live in the glorious liberty of the children of God. To turn away from our own resources, our own efforts, our own willpower, our own resolutions, our own promises. Turn away from these things and turn to God to supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This is what the Pharisees could not get through their thick heads. And it's why they opposed Jesus with a fury unknown to Herod or Pontius Pilate. Should we try harder? Of course we should. We can always do more than we do. We can always make better efforts. But try harder is not the central message of the Bible. The gospel is the central message of the Bible. It tells us that we are justified not because we try harder, but because Christ died for us. It tells me, it tells us we'll grow in grace, not become, because we become more disciplined, but because the Holy Spirit has been given to us in answer to Christ's death and resurrection. 
It tells us we're going to make it to heaven, not because we're going to be really, really good all of our lives and never do anything wrong. It tells us we're going to make heaven because Jesus has gone there as our forerunner to prepare a place for us. The fact of the matter is, willpower is insufficient. I've always struggled with the lack of willpower. Maybe you're one of those lucky people who haven't done that. But my weak willpower, your strong weak willpower are equally inadequate. What is adequate is God's grace. Paul's, uh, the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. The need for the new birth puts us where we need to be, on our knees before the throne of grace. And that's a very good place to be because that's where we're promised to find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. So let's go back to the beginning. What's wrong with the Pharisee? Well, there are a lot of things wrong with the bad Pharisee. But what's wrong with the good Pharisee, the sincere Pharisee? What's wrong with the Pharisee is he tries to, um, to live on his own steam. He tries to live merely in response to what God has done for him. It didn't work for the Pharisees, and it won't work for us. God's grace is a gift. It's given to us freely. It's given to us because God loves us, not because we're in any way deserving of that gift. We're not deserving of the gift. It's a gift. It's free. It's without charge. It's unearned. It's undeserved. And the moment we start realizing that, the moment we realize that our goodness is nothing apart from God and every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, that's the day we'll cease being Pharisees ourselves. That's the day, paradoxically, when we find that where trying harder doesn't work, by submitting to God's grace, renouncing our own goodness, we end up trying harder and doing well. So what's wrong with the Pharisee? Pharisee's belief that life is self-generated, it isn't, it's given. And that's a lesson that Nicodemus needed to learn way back in the day. And that's a lesson that you and I need to learn this day. It would take a man more eloquent than I, more persuasive and forceful, better organized than I am, to impress this lesson on you. But even he couldn't do it for more than a short time. This is a lesson God himself has to impress upon us. That his grace really is sufficient. And everything we have comes from Him, including our efforts, including the acts of trying harder. So God, teach us these things is my prayer. I wish you God's blessing. Let's pray, please. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the new birth. We thank you for the sustaining grace that you give us. And Lord and Father, we ask you to forgive us for 
trusting ourselves, for thinking that there's something in us, there's nothing in us but sin and inadequacy. But Lord, there's no sin in your Son, and He's altogether sufficient. And I pray today and every day we would trust Him. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here, to speak some part of God's Word to these dear saints. Lord, I pray that you'd use this Word to convict and persuade and comfort and teach to do whatever needs to be done. You are God. You're the reader of hearts. You know what we need, and I pray that you'd provide it to us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.